Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Impact Makers Podcast, where my goal is to help you build a career that you love and a life that matters. In one of my keynote talks, I ask the question, who are the people that come to mind when you think about who has had the most impact in your life? And I love hearing some of the answers from audience members. Some common mentions are parents, teachers, bosses, or religious leaders. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone mention a blogger. But if you were to ask me that question, that would be one of the answers that you would probably get. To understand why, we'll need to go back over 10 years. I was working as an executive recruiter after having spent almost 20 years as an HR leader and an executive in the corporate world. It was challenging and exciting to be learning a new career path, and I craved information that could help me to grow and also to stay connected to the issues that my clients were facing in regards to the people and talent. Enter Chris Dunn, a VP of HR who worked for a small software company in Birmingham, Alabama. After following a link in an email newsletter from an employment news website, I found Chris's blog called The HR Capitalist. He wrote daily, sharing his point of view and opinions on all things workplace. Eventually, I figured out how to use something called an RSS feed and Google Reader, and The HR Capitalist was the first blog that I added to my daily reading habit. Through reading Chris's blog, I followed links to posts or sites that he mentioned and over time connected with a growing community of like-minded bloggers and human resources and recruiting leaders around the world. And if you've been listening since the second episode of this podcast, which was my conversation with my BFF, Laurie Rudiman, you may remember that I found her through a link that Chris shared as well. But it was a blog post that Chris wrote on February 22nd, 2008, that had a major impact on me and my future career. The post was titled, Help Wanted, Witty and Sometimes Jaded Talent Professionals Who Want to Blog Weekly. Up to that point, I hadn't really considered blogging myself, but the job requirements resonated with me, and they included personality and the ability to merge other resources and pop culture in writing, all in an effort to make it digestible for the commoners, i.e. me. And skin thicker than that of a donkey for the lashings you'll receive in the comments section. I mean, who wouldn't want to sign up for that? And then, of course, there were the fabulous benefits that he listed, like membership in an exclusive yet opinionated team that will undoubtedly make the dysfunction in your extended family look like an episode of Little House on the Prairie, and the warm feeling of giving back to your profession with the professional distance that only digital media can provide. I thought that was awesome. Without thinking too much about it, I applied right away and thankfully was accepted to be a member of the original cast writing on the blog called Fistful of Talent, our FOT for those in the club. And while I was never the most prolific writer, regularly sharing my thoughts and opinions on a website that quickly became one of the industry's most popular resources was a foundational piece in what I eventually learned was called my personal brand. Shortly after jumping in the pool with Fistful of Talent, I started my own blog on my first website, affectionately called CincyRecruiter.com. That eventually morphed into UnbridledTalent.com when I stepped out on my own in 2010 and last year transitioned again to JenniferMcClure.net. So Chris has been there with me from the beginning, 
And I think it's safe to say that for many HR recruiting professionals, he's just like our Oprah. (laughs) Someone who's been coming into our lives for years, and we've grown up with him sharing his own brand of wisdom and favorite things. I like that. Chris Dunn, just like Oprah, minus a few zeros in his bank account, and of course, a Stedman. Today, Chris is the Chief Human Resources Officer and a partner at Kinetics, an RPO firm based in Atlanta, Georgia. He's also a husband, father, lover of grunge music originating from Seattle, and a hoops junkie who continues to find ways to extract leadership lessons from sports and pop culture like no other. If you're interested in learning more about how to build your own personal brand by sharing what you know, you'll want to listen in on our conversation today. Chris shares about what it's like to have a demanding day job while building a personal brand on the side, and also some of the risks that he's taken in his personal career journey that have positioned him for success along the way. And in typical Chris Dunn fashion, he drops quite a few value bombs about what it takes to get noticed and get ahead in today's world, regardless of your career path. So hey, Chris Dunn, welcome to the Impact Makers podcast. It is such an honor to me for you to be here chatting with me today. How about for you? Is it an honor for you? Well, the honor, (laughs) of course, is all mine, Jennifer. Great to be here. I've listened to like three episodes of the podcast. I thought for sure I would be like number 74 that you would get to not somewhere in the first 10 or 15. What, a, what an honor this is. It's possible I've sent out 74 invitations and you just replied earlier. How about that? Well, um, <laughs> that takes some of the, uh, the gold and silver off this for me, but it's still great to be here. I always like to build my guests up at the beginning of the podcast. That's the way I do things. So, <laughs> so as, as the listeners could probably tell, uh, Chris is someone that I adore so that therefore I can make fun of him. But maybe since uh, others might not know you as well as I do, or as I think I do, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about who is Chris Dunn? Yeah, so the slightly more than 30-second elevator pitch. So I grew up in rural Missouri, town of 2000, about 10 miles from the Iowa line. So I'm a Midwestern kid. It took uh, you an hour to drive from where I live to actually get to a stoplight. Oh, wow. That that is a distinction. (laughs) Yeah. So town of 2000, totally isolated, um, had had a working class family. Mom was a teacher for 35 years. Dad was a telecom like company like lineman. I had a bucket truck, got an older sister. Um, Anyway, so I, you know, you look back on growing up like that. I'm sure you're the same way in Cleveland, Tennessee, had an unbelievable, like it was like Mayberry. In a, in a lot of ways, had a great family. We didn't, you know, we weren't wealthy, but I had everything I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they gave me, both my parents are passed away um, at this point, but we think about them every day. They gave me everything I needed. So I emerged from that, went to a regional university, played college basketball, a place called Northeast Missouri State, now Truman State. And, you know, the long, like to make the long story short, I took a job in college basketball at UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham, as an assistant coach for a Hall of Fame coach named Gene Bartow, and did that for the first three years out of undergraduate. And uh, shout out to all the coaches out there. Figured out, even at a young age, that I was going to, I might be poor for a (laughs) long time in coaching. Went back, got my MBA, and uh, really, the long and the short of it is, I was in coaching. I worked for IBM Global right out of the MBA program doing marketing consulting for a partner. So I was a junior associate, traveling three or four days a week. It's a very 
very strong learning experience in terms of the value of intellectual properties intellectual property rather in ideas did that for two years my wife and I were in st. Louis a little closer to home at that point she's a prosecutor she's a career prosecutor and we went through one hellacious winter back in the Midwest and we we both looked at each other it was before kids we said what the hell are we doing <laughs> and we wanted to get back to the southeast we knew Birmingham at the time which is a very underrated city about a, about a million in the metro and I called back to some people that I did some work for at Bell South, which became Singular, which is now AT&T on the wireless side. And this is before the days of LinkedIn, Jennifer. And I, I called them back and I said, hey, we're looking to get back to the Southeast. Do you, do you have anything? And I was talking to an HR director who I did some project work for. And she said, and I still remember the words clear as day, Jennifer. She said, well, don't have anything and what you're doing in marketing or anything like that. But I do have an HR manager job open and I'm familiar with your work. And by the way, you used to coach. So I think you might be a good fit. Uh, and the rest, have, of course. Yes. <laughs> and, and the rest, as they say, is history. I went in, I didn't have to pay many dues to get a, like an actual client group as an HR manager, went into it, loved it, loved the interactions with, you know, the, the leaders of the different like functional areas and divisions that I was supporting. I was, I was supporting like a client group of about a thousand people in that first job and really found HR to be something that I fully enjoyed and thought that I really had a huge runway in. So I went from, you know, Bell South, which was singular at the time, went there, took my first director level job um, at another telecom company, spent about six years there. Then I spent five years at um, a couple of venture-backed software firms. So I went from a really big client group. Biggest client group for me is like 6,000 people at the telecom. So I became a VP of HR in the field doing that type of work. Went small, learned that the work got really interesting, um, especially in the technology sector. And then in 2010, along the way, I started a couple blogs, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, in 2010, because of those blogs, one's called The HR Capitalist, the other's called Fistful of Talent, I had a lady named Shannon Russo who uh, reached out to me. They were doing a VP of HR search. She's trying to tap into my network in the blogs to really source candidates. One thing led to another. Ten months later, I made one of those lifetime investments in my current company, which Shannon founded. That company is called Kinetics, which is a recruiting firm and an RPO firm based out of Atlanta. And we're coming up on eight years since I've like made that decision, joined Shannon. It's been a great run. She's a great partner. So I work in a minority interest way for a very strong female. And that's one of the things we talk a little bit about. I've always been around working women. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, with everything that's going on these days, um, I think that's probably empowered me a little bit to have really great relationships with women bosses and really respect everything that women can bring professionally to any workplace. 
Well, that's interesting. And there's several like jump off points along that way. So I'm going to try to hit them all, but let's go back to the beginning when you, you stepped out of coaching into a human resources role because you wanted to get to the warmer weather. So that's right. a great reason to <laughs> right. start that's, there. Yeah, um, that's the reason. Yes. But what was it about? You said that you kind of took to that right away. What was it about working in human resources that really connected with you based off of kind of your background and who you are? Well, the first thing is the director of HR I was working for in that HR manager role was a lady named Marilyn Brooks. And Marilyn Brooks had been very compassionate and warm to me and given me opportunity when I was going back from an MBA, I actually worked in a call center at uh, Bell South and she had gone out of her way. She figured out who I was, gone out of her way to give me project work and to let me work on things that were probably well above my pay grade and it treated me magnificently. And mm-hmm. I probably, I deserve some of that. I deserve some of that. I probably didn't. Right. So I think I wanted to go back because I trusted her and, you know, she sold me a little bit on, on what HR was. And so, you know, it's kind of a combination of relationship plus, you know, a very minor understanding of what was included in HR, a lot of trust with maybe someone who was a type of mentor. And then I got into it and figured out it was just an unbelievable match for me. It's interesting, you know, with the conversations that I've been having with people on the podcast, some that have already uh, aired and some that will air. Uh, and of course, it's called Impact Makers to hear the stories of how people that I see today as being impact makers out there like yourself can trace it back to one or two people who identified them, reached into their life and gave them opportunity. And so it's just a reminder, I think, to all of us to be on the lookout for people to do that and also to be on the lookout for people to do that for each of us, I think. Yeah. Can I, can I add one thing to that? Yes. I think the, the other thing that people have to keep in mind is the value that you provide. So it's, it's interesting. I didn't like think about like talking about this today with you, but when Marilyn Brooks gave me project work, I, um, you know, I really like went after that in a way and really like, like kind of treated it as my own product and really went above and beyond. So I think, I think everything you said is correct. I also think that the people who get the biggest opportunities in life are the people who really understand that their work product, you know, when they're given an opportunity, if they treat it like a special opportunity and they don't treat it like a transaction, and they really try and wow people. And I know that's kind of like cliche to say, wow, but if you really go above and beyond, I think you create some of your own magic because I doubt if I wouldn't have done what I did with that, those one or two projects for her. I doubt if she says, well, what about working for me in HR? Mm-hmm. If I would have just treated those like transactions and she would have been like, eh, it's okay. Hey, how's Chris's work? Eh, it's okay. You know, mm-hmm. if it would have been like that, I'm not sure I get the opportunity, but because I went above and beyond, um, you know, everything worked out. And so I think you're right. People reach in, give you opportunity. But if you look at a hundred people, I think, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's like, you're really preparing for future opportunities with the way you treat people, right. And the way you treat the opportunities that are given. Absolutely. So, you know, I preach it to my kids. I've got two sons, one's 17 and one's 14. And, you know, in a roundabout way, like we preach that like every day that, you know, you have an opportunity to influence um, how people, people perceive you with how you handle this work or this situation and you can't just kind of phone it in. 
maybe when they're 35, 40, 45, they'll appreciate that advice. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's kind of, yeah, that's what happens to all of us, right? That's right. So, oh so speaking of providing value, and, and I shared in the intro kind of how you, you have been an impact maker in my life. And part of that is as a result of finding you through blogging. But I don't know, having known you for all these years, that I've actually ever asked you what was the impetus for that decision to start writing on the World Wide Web? How did how did you come to that decision, and when was that exactly? Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good question. So, in I made the move from like Fortune 500, like VP of HR, to venture back software firms in 2005. So, I made the move to a company that's probably like you know, and this is still a big deal. It's probably like 40 million in revenue at the time. Went in and had about a year's worth of work to kind of create, kind of like revamp the HR department and create kind of my vision of it, make the people that I work for at the C-level um, certainly like happy. But I got about a year in to that, that first software company and I looked up like after a year and I said, oh boy, like I'm bored. And like a bored Chris Dunn, is never a good Chris Dunn. Like a lot of <laughs> bad things happen when Chris Dunn is bored. Um, some of them we can talk about. Some of them we, we probably shouldn't. But I don't like to be bored. So I looked around and I said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something because I have the time. And I'm in a technology company at the time doing something like blogging. You almost had to be in a technology company because normal like corporations would not – think highly of somebody blogging as a VP of HR for their company. So in the Fortune 500 telecom company, I could have never done it, but I found myself in the right situation working for a CEO and a CFO who were happy to allow me to do that. And, uh, you know, it all worked out. So I looked around. I was influenced at the time, Jennifer, by the Gawker set of properties, both Gawker and Deadspin which is the sports version of that family, kind of writing in an irreverent tone. So my goal was, I, I said, hey, I'm going to blog as a VP of HR, a guy or gal in the field in HR. I'm going to blog daily. I'm going to create a blog. I'm going to blog daily. I'm going to do it every day for one business year, and I'm going to see what happens. So and that daily. was every business day? Or every, every business day, day Saturdays okay. and Sundays off, because, okay. you know, come on now. <laughs> um, so it was Monday through Friday, and I didn't miss a day. And what happened was, at first, no one came. It was like crickets, right? So I powered through that, and then ultimately, some people started finding me. Um, I got picked up by some aggregators back in the day that were, like, literally spamming hundreds of thousands of people daily. And one thing I did do is I wrote good titles. So they would pick me up and my article would be the lead on a lot of those spam newsletters on a daily basis. And that gave me a lot of traffic and gave me a followership like from which I built. So the opportunity to blog, and I met you through, I think, an outreach for Fistful of Talent. So the mm -hmm. first blog was called The HR Capitalist, still exists today. Look it up at hrcapitalist.com for the self pitch. <laughs> and um, that, that's always been me and me alone, Monday through Friday. And then about a year in, I got approached um, by a media company that said, hey, we want to do something like the HR Capitalist, but we want you to write it. I actually went to New York and I met with this company who's no longer in existence, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I met with them and I said, hey, I can't do a second blog and keep my day job. But I tell you what I'll do is instead of you owning it, let me own it. 
I will recruit other people to write for this blog, which ultimately became Fistful of Talent. I will recruit other people. I'll own it outright. You will have the, um, the long-term rights to be the only advertiser on it. And you can sponsor it that way and away we went. And that became Fistful of Talent, the second blog that I think was launched in HR Capitalist was early 2007. Fistful of Talent would have been launched roughly March or April of 2008. And you mm -hmm. might be able to check me on that. Yeah, I think it was March 2008 because that's when I first started blogging and that was on Fistful of Talent. So yes. it's interesting to hear you had an Oprah moment there where you like negotiated for your own rights and, and look what's happened with her. Um. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't, it's, it's interesting you say that because I didn't really, I didn't really have any advice. You know, there's a lot of people today that would give you the advice, own the brand, right? Mm -hmm. Stop working for the man, right? Get your side hustle on, like all those things. I didn't really have that. I just knew, I, and I can't remember like what group kind of like websites, group writer websites or blogs that I was influenced by, but I knew that model was out there. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, it's like I was trying to keep my day job, actually. And I was just trying to figure out a way to keep the side hustle going because they wanted to make me an employee. And that would have been more problematic than me simply um, spending, you know, a good bit of like even more time on my own brand. Mm -hmm. So you were one of the first quote, HR bloggers out there, but it sounds like one of the first bloggers out there. And I know you blogged every day, as you said, every business day, there were times where uh, the HR capitalist was such a regular daily event for me that if your blog didn't show up in my Google reader that I was using at the time, I reached out to you and said, are you alive? <laughs> you know, and there were a couple of times I think I caught it where your RSS feed was broken or something because I began to, that was part of my day and the expectation of that regularity um, was powerful. Is, is that something that, you know, at least looking back, you think, obviously, as you said, you wrote good content, you wrote good headlines, you had a practitioner viewpoint with a, with a uh, Chris Dunn kind of attitude to it, maybe that gawker. How would you describe thing. that attitude, Jennifer? It's 80s everything. <laughs> 80s everything sports and pop culture okay <laughs> did, did i nail it did i get well the i mean you know, aesthetic? I, I, yeah i think you know what i've always tried to do is i, I don't write in a clinical fashion right right i try and take like a, a kernel of hr recruiting and then i try and like rip things from the headlines yeah and and from my past um and future and and present and future i, I try and do that and i try and, and write something that I would actually read. That's my preference. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you were one of the first writers at FOT, and I'll let you get back to your, your question, <laughs> and I'll remember what it was. You were one of, my, one of my first writers at FOT, and you know I declined a lot of people because they couldn't write anywhere near kind of in that, that voice. And it doesn't have to be my voice. It just has to be like non-clinical. You can have your own style and you had your own style and, and have your own style, mm -hmm. but there's gotta be that kind of, Hey, we're just having a conversation. Yeah. And this is how I intersperse what I write with stuff that people can relate to mm -hmm. in the daily world. Well, and that's what I think the best writers in general, but certainly bloggers at the time and even today are people who write with their own voice, um, share practical stuff, but either make it funny or relevant or make you think. Um, so there's more than just content, which is what a lot of stuff out there is today, just content. Right. And I would never say that you were someone who just wrote content. 
but the question was really around um, that consistency. Do you think, yeah. what do you think that did for you? Uh, that's hard and it's still hard today and you still do it today. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what I tell people is that I write daily and what that means, Jennifer, to me is that some days it's going to suck in my eyes or your eyes or somebody's eyes, right? And, and the perception of a single piece of content that you're putting out there can be different like across the board for people. Some days it's going to suck. Some days it's going to be awesome. Like I'm the best ever, Jen. Like <laughs> some, some days. Some days <laughs> it's going to be awesome. A lot of days it's going to fall somewhere in the middle. But what I've, what I've figured out like through time and having a pretty good readership is that those days are different for a lot of people. So you have to keep at it and you have to keep writing. You got to keep doing what you do in consistency. Like you mentioned it, like you grew to like, you know, expect the daily consistency. So when people start blogs and they start like thinking about this, had a lot of people reach out to me over time. I just say, Hey, you don't have to be me. Like you don't have to do it daily because that's, you know, a form of insanity, right? Mm -hmm to try and do it daily, but you need to figure out what your cadence is, whether it's once a week, twice a week, whatever your cadence is, figure out your cadence and then commit to it because you want to make people feel kind of that cadence and know what to expect. And I think that's, I think that's a secret for success to anybody because, you know, blogging and kind of content is different today than it was two years ago or certainly eight years ago. But, um, you know, letting people know what they can expect from you as a writer mm -hmm. or a content creator, whether that's like video, social podcasting, like, you know, your cadence for podcasting, I'm assuming it's once a week, right? Yep. So that once a week thing, I grow already. So when I see the updates in my iTunes and I see that you're out there on a weekly basis, that's awesome. What I don't want to see, like if you weren't around for two or three months and then you came back online, there's a chance I might not even see it mm -hmm. or I yeah. would like inadvertently skip over it because it's been good so far. I want to know more. And I just like, I, I like, you know, you, I think you teach people to rely on it and make it part of their lives. So what do you, you know, obviously blogging and, and your work in general created opportunities for you. Are there any specific opportunities that come to mind that came oh, as a result man. of blogging? You cannot imagine like I how can't. much, you, you can't imagine how much goodness I have like soaked up. So many professional relationships, yourself included. Like I've met so many good people. And by the way, that those are people that you would consider to be thought leaders like you, Lori, William Tincup, Tim Sackett. Um, Tim Sackett's probably my, like one of my best friends right now. Mm -hmm. And I met him through Fistful of Talent. I met you and Lori. I've met Tincup like through that. But I've also met like hundreds, if not a thousand, like unbelievable practitioners in the field who aren't thought leaders, but they're consumers of content. Mm-hmm. And they challenge me that, you, know, you know, comments are really down on blogs because of social and Twitter and things like that. People, the new comment is a like, and yeah. you hope that they've read it. But I get, like, I have a big email list and I get people replying to me, kind of challenging my train of thought. And that's like, that's like so valuable. So there's been unbelievable opportunities with relationship building. The other thing I would tell you is my second job in software came as a direct result of blogging. Mm -hmm. I went to work for a well-regarded software company in Birmingham called Daxco, 
which uh, is a very, very progressive company in Birmingham. And I got recruited for that job. I mean, really on the back of my blogging and kind of thought leadership profile. Shannon Russo, where I'm at today, um, found me through the blogs and it ended up with this incredible like lifetime opportunity to invest in a business and make that decision mm-hmm. and watch that, that investment grow over, you know, an eight year period. So I could go on and on, but you know, it spans from just like meeting really great people all the way to these huge business opportunities. And there's a lot of stuff in between, but it's been unbelievable. So in both of those instances, you mentioned the CEO at Daxco and then Shannon, the owner of uh, Kinetics, read your blog. That's how they became familiar with you and then recruited you. So let's use uh, the CEO at Daxco as an example. Was he sad that you were blogging then, that that helped you to get another job beyond that? Or did you ever have any pushback from your employers because it created opportunities for you? No, I I really haven't. I think, you know, what what smart people understand is that they hire people and I've, I've got a blog post series and this will air like sometime in the future weeks, but I've got a blog post series at the capitalist this week on ambition mm-hmm. where I'm writing about like my views of ambition in employees because ambition is kind of a dirty word, but I think anybody who's smart enough to hire you for a leadership position um, is going to value the ambition you have and the fact that you're highly mobile and they're probably going to understand that they're not going to keep you forever. Now, Shannon's a little bit different because that's not a job. Like I made an investment and I'm one of two owners at Kinetics. So I joke with people all the time that, you know, Kinetics is somewhat like the, the Hotel California. 80s reference. There you um, go. <laughs> it's it's some, somewhat like the Hotel California. I could check out. I'm not checked out. I could check out, but I can never leave. Mm-hmm. Because like a large degree of, you know, like my portfolio is like tied up in kinetics. So certainly I'm not leaving. But I think Dave Gray was understanding. And by the way, just quick like shout out to that. Um, I spent four years with the first software firm, spent a year and a half with Daxco. What I found out is like looking back at it and even at that time, I found out that I shouldn't have made the job change to Daxco. I was looking for change. But really, if I look back out on it, I was looking for a form of even greater entrepreneurship than the blogs and the thought leadership could provide me. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me more about that. You know, you and I had, had some conversations along that time frame about kind of this desire for that entrepreneurial um, path. Right. What did you think that was at that time? And, and has it turned out to be... Um, you know, you're not done with it yet, but has it turned out to be what you thought it would be being an entrepreneur? Well, I always joke with people and this is like a credit to Shannon and everything she had built. So she started really kinetics in earnest in 2004 and I joined her in 2010 and and we've grown it together and I've got something to do with that, but certainly I'm like one of, one of many that has like helped grow that. But I always joke with people like you, and you may have even heard me say this, is when I, when I joined Shannon, people give me credit for being an entrepreneur, but really I'm like an entrepreneur with training wheels because I bought into an existing business that um, really like I get a chance to really do a lot of things that I'm good at and things that I'm interested in doing. So if you want, we can talk about like a bucket list of stuff that I want to do and some of the things that being in kinetics has provided me. But 
I'm an entrepreneur with training wheels because Shannon is an unbelievable operator. Mm -hmm. So she's from the recruiting industry. She's got a finance background. I never have to worry about the balance sheet. Um, she's an unbelievable operator. I split my time between Atlanta and Birmingham. She's in Atlanta all the time where the vast majority of our employees are. So it's been what I've expected, but like to be clear, and I'm, I'm very mindful of this, I never felt the, oh my goodness, it's just me moment um, that other people felt. Now, one thing I did do that some people don't have the, the stomach for is I made a big bet financially and uh, invested in kinetics. So um, I'm an entrepreneur with training wheels, but I was brave enough and followed my gut instincts where I can still remember, Jen, like I was outside of Regions Bank in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna t can I tell you a quick story? You absolutely can. Just about the, um, I guess the fear and self-loathing that goes along with like entrepreneurial decisions. So um, Shannon and I get the deal done and I'm gonna buy in, okay? And it's a big amount. And I've gotta wire the money. And most of the people that are listening to this have never had to wire an amount of money that I had to wire. So I walk into a Regions Bank in suburban Birmingham, and I go up to the counter and I say, I need, to, I need to wire money. And the lady behind the counter, like, you know, says, okay, you need to go see Tom over there, pointing to like cubes or whatever. So I go over and see Tom, and um, Tom's like a 24-year-old. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. He's going to wire this large sum of money. So I say, Tom, I need to wire like money. And he says, oh, I'm, I'm here to help. I've got, I've got you. Like, let's talk about this. How much do you need to wire? And I told him the amount. And he, and I know we're not going to use this video. I can see Jen and she can see me. <laughs> but uh, I, I told him the amount. And there's just like this three-second pause. And he's looking straight at me. And he says, I need to make a quick phone call. Going to have to talk to the manager. <laughs> right. So he goes and makes his phone call. We end up getting it done. And I walk out of this regions and I'm looking up. I can still remember what the clouds looked like above this regions bank. Because there's one of those moments where if it doesn't work out, maybe at some point, you and your family, not that there's anything wrong with this, but we were homeowners at the time. And the preference is that you don't lose your house. Strong preference, yeah. As you chase your professional <laughs> um, desires. So there was, a, you know, there was some chance that I might end up living in an apartment, which there's nothing wrong with, but it means I lost my house, mm -hmm. which is something that I'd rather avoid. So I can still remember what the clouds look like. Um, so I always, to go back to your original question, I'm an entrepreneur, but I did it in a different way. So I'm not a Han Solo entrepreneur. I took like a big chunk of my assets and invested it. And it's worked out. But I got to tell you, like Shannon's one of those people. I found one of those people, and I think all of us can count them on probably one hand that I've never had a bad day with. Mm -hmm. So my gut instincts told me that that would be the case. And that's been true. I'm a minority owner in Kinetic. She's always treated me like I'm, like I'm an equal. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I had a conversation recently where someone gave the definition of an entrepreneur or a definition is someone who embraces risk. So, right. so maybe you can count yourself as an entrepreneur, even with those trading roles, because wheels, because yeah. you, you did certainly embrace some risk and you mentioned an entrepreneur bucket list. So 
you know, share, do tell, what is that on? Yeah. So, you know, I've got, I've got this bucket list of stuff I want to do. Um, and, you know, I'm still a young man. Yes, Jennifer, you are. I think you would agree with that. You're younger than me. That counts. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm still a young man. There's a lot of stuff I want to do. Um, but this has like been a great run. But what Kinetics has done is we do three things. We do RPO, which means we outsource groups of positions from company and we become the recruiter of record. We recruit under their brand. And um, we do that. You know, we've got some you know, some uh, relationships with companies where we do that for thousands of positions for a single company. And then we've got relationships where we do that with 20 or 25. We also do single position search in all the major functional areas. And then we've got an HR consulting arm um, that represents probably five to 10% of our total revenue. And it's the HR consulting arm, since I'm like a classic HR practitioner, and have this entrepreneurial vibe that we've been able to, I've been able to treat that a little bit like a sandbox. So one of the things we've done is I was able to really conceptualize and build a recruitment marketing practice inside Kinetics where we, in a variety of ways, help companies with their employment brand and how they present that to the outside world. We actually have like develop, like web developers who develop career sites for companies. And we have very much a content marketing strategy related to helping those companies tell the stories and we use social to spread the word, et cetera, et cetera. So I was able to build that practice from scratch. And uh, probably the, the other most recent thing that's a business within the business is I was also able to create a training series for managers of people called the Boss Leadership Series. You're familiar with that. And, you know, we've sold a lot of that and that series is kind of just around to do something that I never, to try and do something that I've never seen done, which is make, you know, training for managers of people. How do I manage people better, a little more accessible and to actually like hopefully get a couple smiles, like from the audience as you're training. And, you know, all that is, is we've got seven modules of training for managers of people and it's good content. I'm proud of the content, I'm proud of the series. And what I found is that it's, you know, it's a great opportunity for the right facilitator to go in and have like a different type of conversation with managers of people. It's different every time because cultures are different and there's different managers in front of you. But, you know, those are two great examples of being able to have an HR bucket list of stuff I'd really like to do. And I was able to do that inside Kinetics and really they become lines of business for us. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, to, to share just a quick little aside, we talked about, you know, your kind of ethos being that uh, pop culture, 80s, um, certainly 80s music, movies, those kinds of things. And at one point I worked with you and your team to deliver one of those training programs. Um, and so to have me for a couple of days delivering the training where a lot of the examples were movie clips and songs, some of which I had never seen. Right, right, of course. <laughs> but, but I was like, if you guys don't know Chris Dunn, you just need to, or if you know Chris Dunn, you need to channel his voice through me as I deliver this training because I see it all through the training. Um, and I told you then, of course, I've told you many times, and so now we'll put you on the spot. That training series is a beautiful thing. It's very, as you said, a lot of great value uh, delivered in a way that for two full days, I had people's attention. And I know you and your team do when you deliver the training as well, because it's not your traditional training. But at the end of the day, it's great content that needs to be in a book. 
So what is the path to a book for Chris Dunn? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. By the way, before I answer that question, I'm going to like commandeer <laughs> control of your your podcast interview again. <laughs> okay. Before I answer that question, your listeners should know that Jennifer McClure <laughs> has facilitated the the Boss Training Series, which is leadership training for the modern manager is the tagline. Jennifer Beautiful. McClure, I believe, has delivered that to the largest group on record. Correct and, me if I'm and, wrong, Jennifer, but you had a big, big group. It was a big group, and nobody left because they were they were happy and had a great time. Well, but by the by the way, I, I got to give you a shout out. You know, there's been four or five people outside of Kinetics who have delivered that training for me, and it takes a special person to take good content and engage people and let people learn from each other in that type of series. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why you're an impact maker, Jennifer oh. McClure, because you're like one of the first people that I thought about that could could pull the pull the series off. So thank you for doing that. So back to your book question. Yeah, you're not getting out of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I need to do a book um, because, you know, I like to speak. You're a great speaker. I like to speak and, you know, to really like maximize your opportunity to speak in front of like interesting groups you you need a book so you know yeah it needs to be in a book i need i need to write a book i've got um you know i've got some conversations going on those have happened in the past and i've left them but like by the road like a blown out tire before <laughs> as i've chased other stuff but uh yeah it's probably time we've made a couple of key hires at kinetics as we've grown that probably give me time to chase that. Thanks, thank you for prodding me. Well, and I'll remind you again, you've really already written a book with that training program. So that yeah, could be no, one in the series of the Chris Dunn anthology. So hey, by the by the way, too, one of the things that like so I've delivered the boss series a lot. And um, one of the things, it's kind of like public speaking. I think like all the the people like listening to this when you're in front of people. Um, you know, it can be a really humbling thing. Like I've, I've had like some unbelievable like groups, um, both from like delivering that boss series and being a facilitator and also speaking, you know, at a conference, et cetera, et cetera. You have these unbelievable groups and then like the most humbling thing. And I know you've experienced this, Jennifer, is you go in front of a group. I have this deal. Like I, I always talk to Mrs. Dunn, Angela, I always talk to Angela like on a daily basis when I'm on the road. And if I speak, she says, how'd you do? Good, good job, Angela. Right. She says, how'd you do? And basically what I do is I grade myself. And what, what the most humbling thing is, is when you don't have an engaged group. When you've got a group that's a dud for a lot of reasons and from a professional perspective, you know, the, the hardest thing, and I, I think I've gotten decent at this, is... I measure what I gave to every group, whether it's the perfect group, high engagement, laughing at all my jokes, blah, 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 <laughs> or how dare they, by the way, um, <laughs> non-engaged, don't get any of my humor. So the easiest thing to do is if you feel like the dead group, the easiest thing to do is to give into that and say, well, I'm just getting through this. Yeah. I'm just getting through it. I'm not, you know. These people are dead. I'm not going to try. But so I always have that. And I think I've, I've become pretty good at telling Mrs. Dunn to say, well, 
you know, on those, on those occasions where it's kind of a rough group, I say, well, I didn't have a great group, but I had like my A minus game. I gave them like everything I had. What about you? Have you experienced, I mean, have you experienced that too? Yeah, I think every, everyone who stands in front of a stage, whether you call yourself a professional speaker or not, at some point comes across a group that's just not having it. Um, and, right. and sometimes that could be about you. It could be, you know, what's going on in the world. It could be that's their culture. I mean, you, but I, I like what you're saying. I mean, you have to, you have to really give it your all. Um, and sometimes, you know, for me as an introvert, that can be very exhausting because then you leave that and, and you truly feel physically and mentally tired because Wait, it's work. Yeah. And Jen, like if you if you sense that you've got a dead group in front of you, and by the way, this could be like employ, a group of employees, mm -hmm. like it's something, you know, some of our like leaders um, are, you know, or, or HR people who are listening to, to this, you know, it could be internal in a company. And to stay, to try and get to your A game from a presentation perspective, why others, to, in your words, and I think it's perfect, are not having it, mm -hmm. makes you very vulnerable. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really, really easy to say, well, these people don't deserve everything I can try to give them. Or they're not paying it, me enough. Or <laughs> Right, right. So I've got this rule where... Uh, and I've had this rule for a long time. I think I've gotten better at it the last two to three years on those occasions where it's not perfect. And by the way, it doesn't have to be awful. Sometimes it's just not great. It can mm -hmm. be like somewhere in between, you know, I, I have this rule that, um, you know, if there's one person who shows up, like I got to go and I got to do everything I can. Quick aside, I actually did boss training for an HR professional who was trying to get her game together inside a company. Mm -hmm. Literally, I show up in a major Midwestern city and there was some funkiness in the run-up. I figured it would be like this. I'm doing boss training and the company is paying good money to people. <laughs> to people. <laughs> they got individualized coaching. <laughs> they did. They did. And, uh, you know, that's, that's like pressure like to go. Um, mm -hmm. But it's interesting. Yeah, but I, I think that's what separates the professionals from the the wannabes or the futures. You know, you you give it your all regardless of, of what's happening in the room. And, you know, at least for me, it's harder with larger groups, but certainly if it's a, you know, a, a training type, I try to engage individually with people right. in the room. You got you you to create fans for yeah. you so you can feed off once, their energy. Once you can get someone to tell their story or to laugh with you or to do something, right. then their people start to see, okay, she might be okay. Uh, right. You know, right. so, so you got to try to win one convert and then it's like that third dancer video. I got to get three people. And once I got three, maybe I could get the whole room. So right. it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's not as easy as it looks sometimes. Yeah. So there obviously were a lot of people along the way who've made a difference for you and you've made a difference for me. Thank you very much. Um, what advice would you give to a young Chris with a K or Christine um, coming out of college or maybe in college or young in their career who are kind of looking out there and saying, what can I do in today's world to kind of help uh, facilitate my path to where I want to go? Yeah, you started blogging. Um, yeah. What would I you think, advise? I think the biggest thing is not everybody's going to be, not everybody's a writer, not everybody's a speaker, not everybody is going to be good on camera. If you believe like the transition to video, not everybody's a podcaster. 
I think the biggest advice, and I see this as the leader of a recruiting firm, I think the biggest advice I would give young people is you're going to get, in any job you're in, you're going to get opportunities to work on things that are transferable and marketable to the world inside your company, if you work at a super large company, or outside your company. So the smartest people I see, and they come in a variety of ages, nationalities, genders, they really like span the globe. The smartest people I see from a career perspective are really building portfolios of work. So you have to look for opportunities. So the young person that says, hey, They've got ambition, right? Which is what I'm, I've wrote about by the time people hear this, it'll be a couple of weeks old on the capitalist. People with ambition or who think they have ambition and they want certain things in their career, I would tell them that every year in your career, if you're not working on important stuff, you need to go volunteer um, because people will take you up on volunteering for more work. And you need to do such a great job on your portion of that project. And then you need to save the results. And you need to be prepared to be able to show people the projects that you worked on and describe the impact you have. If you have three or four of those per year and they start stacking up, by the way, you have three or four in a year, you've got something that you can tell somebody if you're looking for an internal transfer inside your company or if you're looking at an outside company, you've got to be able to take them a, a portfolio of work. So you don't have to blog, you don't have to podcast, but in a way you have to create career content and career results that you can reference mm -hmm. and that you can show people. Yeah. And if you're not doing that, what I would tell you is you're going to look like a thousand faces in the crowd. Mm -hmm. And in today's recruiting environment, maybe somebody will find you, but maybe they won't. Yeah. It's like my son is uh, 26 and doing an engineering co-op and has had a pretty good success story recently. And he, you know, certainly is excited and telling me all about it. And every time he does, I'm like, put that in your attaboy file. You need to right. start creating, put it in the cloud. And it's amazing. You know, he's the millennial and I'm like, put it in the cloud. And so the next day he comes in and I'm like, did you put it in the cloud? And he said, I put it on a thumb drive. And I said, yeah, in the cloud, right. in the cloud. Exactly. <laughs> you want something that you will always be able to access to pick and choose things you want to talk about to future employers yeah. or in your career. That's and, right. And make it out there where you can access. So we're going to have to do some work on my millennial there. And, and by the way, like with the, with the young people like your son or like my sons as they kind of get in their career, anybody that's out there right now, here's the reality from a recruiting perspective, okay? Out of 100 candidates, and let me, let me take that down like a normal search. Let's say somebody was being um, a little obsessive compulsive with interviewing and they interviewed 10, 10 candidates. Lucky, 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 if you have one that at the end of your interview and that would drop a like just a tabbed folder of projects that they've done and like like showing outcomes mm -hmm. you don't even like you're going to talk about those things certainly in the interview but the most powerful thing you can do if i'm interviewing with jen mcclure and we have a good conversation i feel like there's some rapport she asks if i have any questions of course i ask smart ones and then we're done and we wrap it up and i say hey jennifer um i brought you this um, like portfolio of just stuff I've worked on. We've talked about some of this, some of this we haven't. Thought I'd just give you this as a lead behind. That's a great and the tip. fact, and the fact that you have something physical on your desk, um, it just separates you. Mm -hmm. 
I like that tip. That's worth the price of admission here. So what is in the future for Chris Dunn? What's happening next for you? I've, I've gotten a commitment on the book. I would like to reference that. <laughs> <laughs> by, by the way, Tim Sackett is coming out with a book. Yes. Um, I Way think to give a shout out to your friend there. Hits in late April. I wrote the foreword for that book, Jennifer. I have read that and it's awesome. Okay. So I would love, I'm just putting myself out there. Maybe not as a book writer. Maybe I'm a foreword writer for impact makers. And when you do your book, I would love to, you've got like Lori, I know is like very close to you, but I would love certainly to be like something if I can't write the foreword for you, Jennifer, I would love to be like inside back cover, just something witty in like 75 words. What you've just witnessed here is a masterclass in deflecting responsibility. <laughs> Chris Dunn is going to write a book and he may write the foreword for my book, but he's still if, gonna write a book. <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't like your question, I just talk about what I wanna talk about, right? You're very I just, good at that. I just changed 50% of it. Where can people find you on the interwebs or in yeah. life? <laughs> yeah. So um, anybody that's listening to this podcast, Twitter at Chris underscore done. Don't ask me why. Okay. That's what was available like, like 10 years ago. Cause the other Chris Dunn's like rush to the social medias. <laughs> right. Right. So long story. I won't, I won't take you down, down that path. Um, LinkedIn, obviously Chris Dunn. I work for kinetics. Um, you can find me at kinetics as well. Also, hrcapitalist.com um, and fistfulloftalent.com. Fistful of Talent and the HR Capitalist continue like to grow. And the, the, the best thing those things have done is just give me the opportunity to meet people like you, Jennifer. And for that, I am forever grateful because the audience, specifically you and your high profile, but even the audience that doesn't have a podcast, doesn't have their own blog, who's just consuming content, when they, when they email me to check me on the thoughts I'm sharing, it's like the most powerful thing ever. And that's, that's how I've grown. So you can find me in any of those places. Also, you can look me up, kineticshr.com. I'm on the leadership page there. My email's out there. Anybody wants to talk to me, just, just hit me up there. And we'll link up to all these things in the show notes. And that's Chris with a K and Kinetics with a K. Yeah, HR, HR capitalist with a C. You missed a branding opportunity there to be the HR capitalist with a K. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that kind of has, has a Russian feel. Yeah. And, um, that's you know, not good in, these days. <laughs> in today's world, that like it would have been going great. And then I would have been like, where where'd all my followers go? <laughs> well, it's been uh, wonderful to have met you way back in uh, online in 2007, 2008, and eventually in person. And thank you for being an impact maker in my life, Chris. I appreciate you. Yeah, Jennifer, thanks for the time. It's been great to talk to you. All right. One of the best things about the journey of making an impact in the world is the people that you meet along the way and seeing how they're creating impact. My friend, Laurie Rudiman, is one of those people. She's a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur who is setting out to fix work. In her podcast called Let's Fix Work, she's tackling why work is often so miserable for many people and what we can all do to fix it. Here's some of what she's talking about. During the past 10 years, I've developed a huge network of friends and colleagues. These are people who are passionate about fixing work. They have big ideas. They're authors, speakers, consultants, and even HR ladies who want to help workers find purpose and meaning. So I'm starting a podcast to interview my friends who want to fix work. I love the Let's Fix Work podcast, and I think you will too. 
check it out and subscribe over at letsfixwork.com. If you want to raise your game at work, you've got to raise your impact. Find out Jennifer's 10 best strategies to make more of an impact at work at jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways. That's jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways.